women are powerful and have accomplished great things. Yet, sometimes we suffer from self-doubt, fear, and limiting beliefs. We often believe that we are not good enough. These negative beliefs stop us from achieving our goals. Welcome to Sprinting to Success, a podcast dedicated to women who have experienced struggles, yet found ways to step into their power, their greatness, and learn to embrace challenges. These women will share their stories and give you insights to help you on your path so you can follow your dreams. And now, here's your host, Esme Lawrence. Hello, everyone. My guest today is a founder of Transition Management Advisors and is a CEO of the software company Constituent Hub. He works with executive teams to help implement the strategies developed in the boardroom. My guest today is Jim Contorici. Jim, welcome. Thank you, Asmi. It's great to be with you. Oh, thank you so much. So tell me, how, tell me what's, how was your childhood? My childhood was really good, Esme. I grew up in Niles, Ohio, near Youngstown is probably the biggest, closest big town there was, um, a small town. And it was interesting because almost everybody in my small town growing up was Italian. All of the Italians, when they immigrated to the country, all moved uh, or a lot moved there to get the jobs in the steel mills at the time and from in the 19 teens. And so when I grew up, Everybody was Italian. It was like living in an Italian village. And so I didn't realize until I went to college that people didn't just hang garlic from their porch and so on. It was very <laughs> ethnic, very, you know. And so um, I had to go away to school. I went to Ohio State in Columbus, Ohio, uh, a huge university, actually bigger than my hometown, uh, just the university. And, uh, and that's where I got to see the bigger world or began to see the bigger world. So, right. Um, yeah. So, so you picture in the movie, you picture in the movies, the grandmothers yelling at all the kids on the block. That's exactly how it was. Right. Just like the stereotype. And did you learn to speak Italian? Um, a, a lot, I would say, but not perfect. And, and here's why. My parents were of the generation where they had, they wanted to assimilate and they didn't want us to speak Italian. Uh, they wanted us to just speak English. It was, but both of my parents learned English when they went to school for the first time in kindergarten. And so they didn't want us to speak Italian. However, we lived across the, the uh, lot from my grandmother, my aunts and uncles. They all spoke Italian to each other. So it's in there. We, we heard that. So when I went to Italy, my wife was just astonished because it just came out. And, uh, you know, it's in there, right? So my, my dog speaks Italian. She's a border collie. So <laughs> we keep it alive. Keep it, keep it alive. Exactly. Awesome. So in high school, what were some of the challenges you had? Well, um, maybe like you, um, and, and we're going to diverge very quickly, but I was very fast. I was the fastest kid on the team. I was the fastest uh, runner in school. Nice. And, uh, and I played football, and I assumed, given my speed, that I would be able to get a, a, um, a, uh, a, a full ride to college and play football in college, and that's the way it was going to be. And then, of course, I tore, tore my ACL and my MCL, oh. and, and uh, I couldn't run anymore. I wasn't fast anymore. So then I had to learn to study. <laughs> so, that, that was probably... <laughs> you weren't yeah. going to be a professional athlete anymore. You're gonna, exactly. You have to make exactly. sure that, yeah, you use your brain yeah, better, instead of your body. Paying, 
paying attention now. We'll get that scholarship another way. Um, so that was probably the biggest setback when, um, you know, it came relatively easily to me, athletics, and, and I, I, you know, and I felt comfortable in that arena. And then all of a sudden like that, it was gone. And, right. uh, and so, you know, that's, that's, that's a tough thing for anybody. There are many, many worse things, but when you're a teenager and that's all you're focused on, you know, it's a, it's a blow. And so, but you know, it, it, it taught me quickly to just let's get to work, go back to work, uh, start, you know, get it done, do the studying and get to school and, and so on. And so, um, it, I obviously, other than, um, creaking now and being able to tell you when it's going to rain. Um, I, I think of that as a good thing. Right. Actually, <laughs> you, know, you know what? It was good that you injured yourself early. Not that it's a great thing, but no, no, no. you injured yourself early. And because a lot of athletes with, with me, I just wanted to run. I said, I didn't care about school. Um, I didn't think it was important at that time. I just want to run. So if you get injured early, then you have to have a backup plan. It's like, what's exactly. next? You know, and so that, that was good because sometimes you wait until some people get injured when they're in university and, uh, and it's like, uh oh, what, what do I do now? You know, exactly. education was not really, I went to school just to, to run. <laughs> so. Right, right. And so, yeah, that, that's an even big, it's, it's more devastating the, yes. the later you go in the process. But uh, there's also a lot of learning, obviously, in sports, as you know. Um, so, you know, I, I think I got the advantage of that or, or took advantage of that. But then also I uh, was able to balance it out. Sure. Right. So the injury helped with that. Exactly. Any challenges as an adult? Um, I, 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 I really, I, I wouldn't, I just don't think in terms of, of challenges in that way. Um, I, I started a business uh, relatively early on. Um, I, I had two full real jobs, if you want to call them that, um, before starting, you know, eight years and eight years and then started my own company. And so I think probably the biggest challenge is that, I mean, the hurdle of, of building a business and going through that process, um, in effect, being suddenly all alone um, from a success or failure standpoint, I, I, would, I would consider that a challenge, a wonderful one, right? yes. <laughs> but, um, but def certainly a challenge. So it's, um, there's not that comfort level that you might have in certain careers, you know, um, doing, doing the taking the path that I decided to take. Um, but uh, again, uh, like, like earlier challenges, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's, it's obviously the best to, for me, the best way to go. So. Oh, definitely. So you building that business now, did it help you in your, in your second business? Um, when you build your second company? Well, yeah. I mean, once, once we're building the first one and that's in existence, you learn the ropes to a certain extent. Right. And, and I, I think maybe mentally you are more focused in productive endeavors because you don't have to learn those lessons again. Maybe the thing you try, it doesn't work out. Right. And you, you maybe over time, I believe, get a little bit more comfortable with what you're comfortable with. Right. And you make sure that you're not building somebody else's business, but you're building your business. Right. That makes sense. And, and uh, it allows you to be uh, tailor things more to, to what your strengths are and where you want to play, uh, right. what, what you would like to do. So, so I, go I after that's critical. So go after your goals, your dreams. And uh, I know what your strength of your I know what your strengths are. And so you, you work on that and you build that. 
And, and um, so when you build a company, it's not somebody else's company. It's your company, your goals, your dreams. So exactly. if it fails or succeed, it's on you. <laughs> right. Well, and yeah, that's always there. But I think it's okay to, to do it the way you want to do it. So building a consulting um, firm, for example, an executive advisory firm, which is what I did, um, typically what I saw around me were people hiring a lot of, of staff and building big teams and um, generating their revenue on big, huge. I didn't want to do it that way. I wanted it to be more boutique. I wanted to make sure that the professional speaking was a big part of that because I tended to be the guy they always kicked out front to tell everybody what was going on. And I was too naive to realize I was supposed to be afraid of that. So I, that, <laughs> that always was something that I did. I wanted that to be a part of it. So I think, you know, my, my message is it's okay to mold it the way you want it to be. And you have control over that. You don't have to do it the way every, everybody else is doing it. Right. But if, you do it, if it's too big, then you lose control. You could. Now, that might, might be a great way to go. And if that's the way you want to go, go for it. That, that makes sense. But um, for me, I had grown, you know, in my second, my second job before I, I started my own company, I was the second employee in a small consulting firm. And we grew it um, very large and, and hired a lot of people, et cetera. We, we went that path. Uh, so first, I was the second employee. So I got that bug to be an entrepreneur and I knew I'd never have a real job again. Uh, but also I, <laughs> a, I real, had, a real job again. <laughs> exactly. I didn't want a real job anymore. You want uh, a nine but, to five job. <laughs> yeah. 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 Forget nine to five. That was a long time ago. Now it's around the clock. Right. But, um, <laughs> but I had done that. Right. And so I had experienced that growing, hiring a lot of people, et cetera. And I decided that I wanted to do it a little differently. Um, and so again, you have, you have that control um, to do that. And, so yeah, challenges um, and 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 so on, but um, that's the fun of it. Uh, that's that's what we should be doing. We should be right. challenging ourselves. Well, challenges make it makes you grow and um, think out of the box to solve a problem. Exactly. Right. And so you're big into leadership. Now, how did you get into that? Well, just about um, everything that I've done has touched leadership. So. The first company that I worked for, um, I was going to school full-time and working full-time. But while I was there, the company did 38 acquisitions. And so I was the person who helped the new acquisition come into the fold. And so dealing with large organizational change was always something you know, that, that was always part of my job. And again, I was a young punk, so I didn't know any better. I thought your job was like that too. I thought everybody's <laughs> job was like that. I didn't realize that it was a thing, you know, it was a, right. it was a specialty. And so um, in that job, though, uh, with that company, and every time we brought in a new organization, I would work with that general manager. And I found that what I really enjoyed was that providing advice, even though I was a youngster, usually working with somebody much older than I was, I was providing them advice, things that they needed to know to be successful. And I really gravitated towards that. So I was, I've always been working with leaders. Change leadership, it's about leading. I wrote the book, Personal Brilliance. It's about innovation, always working from a leadership standpoint and how do we make our organization more innovative. So leadership has always been there. And then over time, I began working directly with CEOs of, of larger companies and their direct reports in order to grow uh, the organization and to uh, think in, in what I call the new leadership normal. And, and that's just the ability that we, we have to create to, to cross boundaries 
and do that successfully within the organization so that we can become a championship team, not only a championship team and win one championship, become more of that dynasty, if we use the sports analogy, so that right. it, it's a habit to, to uh, win uh, that way. Uh, so what do you, doing it right. What do you mean by cross boundaries? Well, um, we know that any company of any significant size starts to silo by department, the IT department, the marketing department, the sales department, the manufacturing department, and they grow their own silos. And often we hear the advice of knocking down the silos, right? I, I'm not sure that's correct because we need those those uh, functional areas to be working the way they are uh, in order to be efficient and successful. We would love if the VP of marketing wasn't in a death fight with the VP of sales all the time. Right, right? Yes. So we, we jump all the way to knock down the silos and everything will be better. Well, I don't think that's the case. I think what we should do is we keep the silo, but we figure out from a leadership standpoint how to cross those boundaries on a regular basis so that when we're working, all of us on the executive team, you and I are working together for the good of the company, I might give you one of my best resource to help you on a critical initiative that you're working on. And then you might do the same for me because we're crossing those boundaries. We might figure out a way for the sales, marketing, and the, um, the IT department to work very closely together on an initiative when they might not normally if it was just department by department. So right. that crossing of boundaries is what I'm talking about that to me is the, uh, is the secret to success. That's what great companies do well. Right. And, so and the majority of companies don't. Right. Okay. So they come together and they talk. And, and so that's a key communication. So IT and the other departments can come together and it can brainstorm and solve problems instead of being isolated. <laughs> yeah. And as me, I, the way I actually do that and interact with my clients in that way is that, yes, we are coming together and communicating and talking, but we're working on real things. We're not doing exercises. It's right. not a training class. We're actually working on actual things. So if the strategic plan calls for increasing sales in the Pacific Northwest by 12%, and there's an issue with a distributor in the Pacific Northwest, then all of us are working on that problem. And how do we turn that problem into an opportunity? And it's interesting that the legal person might have an idea or the human resources, it does, they don't have to work in the Pacific Northwest or in sales to be able to work on that problem. And here's what happens. When we're working together on that, I discover, hey, she's in human resources, but she's really good at this math stuff. You know, She's able to figure out some financial calculations, even though she's not in the finance department. Next time we have a problem, even if it wasn't my problem you two were working on, I might come to you now for some help. We're starting to cross boundaries and using and being valuable where the value is required. So right. to me, I don't think good, great leadership is normal, but doing that, and when that starts to gel, that's what I call the new leadership normal. And if we can create that, now we're starting to do some magic within our organizations. And is, that the secret, is that the secret to great leadership? I believe so, because all of the tools that we might read in a leadership book are exhibited if you're doing that. So the communication, the delegation, the strategy, strategic thinking, the, all of those types of skills that we attribute to a leader have to exist 
in that scenario, right? When we're working through those real life problems. And so um, it's a growth process. Um, we're always on a, on a path, you know, on a journey through that. We're never, it's like golf, we're never perfect at it, right? That's but right. We keep, we keep trying, we're on the journey. Uh, and, and that's exactly what happens within a leadership team. And, and what I also see as, a, as an offshoot of that work is that leaders start to, they start to police each other. And what I mean by police, it's not, not in a negative sense, but if, if somebody is veering from the culture that we, we enjoy here, um, then there's somebody to pull them back. It's like being, one, some, like being accountable. Exactly, well, and I'll give you an example. I was, I was with a team, my, a team I worked with regularly, and a new leader came on board. And he was describing an issue that he had with an employee and he described what he was going to do about it. And it seemed to be pretty tough, you know, that he was gonna really come down hard on this employee. And what was interesting because there was just a vacuum of silence in the room all of a sudden, and then everybody jumped on him and said, no, that's <laughs> not how we do it around here. That person's been here forever. Here's what they need. Here's what we suggest that you do. And, that, and then now this new guy was then quiet the rest of the day. And I was worried about him. But at the end of the day, he said, if I could say something, please, I would like to thank everybody because I would have been doing it the wrong way for here. And I would have then left this company in a year or two and never would have heard that lesson that I got today. So today was the most valuable experience I've ever had. Again, right. the, the organization, you know, they're working for the good of the company, not for their fiefdom, their department. And, and that's, to me, uh, what I label the new leadership normal that we're striving for. Right. Now, what, um, what are the keys to, to having like a, like personal brilliance in leadership? Ah. Ah. Okay, so from a personal brain standpoint, if we were going to define it, um, let's think of it this way. If you're faced with a situation where you have to come up with and implement great ideas, and you can, that's personal brilliance. Right? So I looked at organizations and I said, I'm, I'm working with companies and there's some people that are doing extraordinary things, but the majority of the people, the masses, are not. They're struggling. It's the, that uh, they're leading that life of quiet desperation. Right. From the, the row quote, right? And so what's the difference? I really wanted to put, get to the bottom of that. And so what I found was there are four catalysts to personal brilliance. And I believe that a company can't be innovative unless individual people coming together are innovative. This isn't something you do in a lab, you know, uh, this is everybody being innovative. So personal brilliance and having a habit of innovation, right? So four catalysts, awareness, curiosity, focus, and initiative. Now, those are words you've heard before. Yes. And those are traits that we're all born with. But I think the raise your hand before you ask a question, stand in line, don't chew gum, kind of rules that we grow up with, tarnish those natural abilities a little bit. And that, that polishing up of those natural abilities is what personal brains is about. And so I'm after the type of innovation that might be, it's not necessarily the light bulb or inventing the new car, right? It could be something like tweaking the billing system so that it's better customer service. It right. could be just, a, a small change to a formula in, in our product that makes a difference and, and takes us to that next level. So it's okay if, if only the, your circle recognizes the innovation. It doesn't have to be something splashed on the front page of a magazine uh, because it's so great. 
But that's the kind of innovation that moves us forward and keeps us going. So it's, it, innovation is really the practical application of creativity into something that has an impact. And so if we want our organization to do that, we want all of the individual people to do that. And then as you're doing your work and you see an opportunity for innovation, because you have the habit of innovation, you use your brilliance to make that so. You know, make it into something that has an impact. And that's how we move forward as a society and as an organization. So that's what personal brilliance is about. And if you think about it, leading large organizational change, innovation, they're really two sides of a coin. Um, we innovate, we then create change, we have to implement that innovation, et cetera. So you can see how it might seem uh, you know, as different topics, but to me, they're very much interwoven together. And, and all of that requires great leadership. And so I, I place then that umbrella over the topic areas that I spend time in. So yeah. then how do you create the culture where people are not afraid to innovate? Well, that's, that's a, it's a big problem that we have. Um, the concept that um, we, we have roles and my role is to be the boss. And um, you're, you're familiar with sports teams and you know that initiation that happens where the freshman uh, has to do, get some hazing before they become part of the team, right? right. That, that happens in real life too. And so they beat me up before I got to be vice president. So I'm going to beat the kid next, the, the younger guy up like they did for me. We have to break that cycle. Yes. And that, that just takes a leader that's, that's in the context of solving a problem or looking at an opportunity to say, that's not okay. Why are we not letting Esme's voice be heard on this? Because we know she has some expertise. That takes some courage to speak up and actually say that out loud. And that's the kind of thing that starts to change the culture. So it, when I punish you because you're complaining, when really what you're trying to do is innovate, um, somebody has to check me as a manager on that. And we have right. to say, we don't do that around here. And that's a, that's a shift that happens. I don't think you, you fix a culture. I think a culture is a result. We can measure things by looking at the culture. And so if I see that innovation doesn't happen in your culture at your company, then I'm going to start asking the kinds of questions you just asked. Are we making it so that people are afraid to contribute? Now, let's fix that. And we'll see a different culture all of a sudden. Right. Um, that's, that's how that happens. And does it matter who gets a credit when um, somebody decides to put their ideas in there? And does it matter if somebody else steals it? <laughs> it, it well, it, sh it, it shouldn't matter, but we're human beings and we're competitive and it does. Again, from a leadership standpoint, I have to ensure that all of that's fair and right. that credit is given properly and that we have a way to recognize the contributions of everyone. And so um, that might happen because, you know, you have the good idea, I come and steal it, and it might be because your manager isn't taking care of you properly. Right. As I, a leader, we should be fixing that, right? And definitely. That, um, so that, yeah, yeah. So it, it's not about you, not about you getting credit as much, but the fact that you're not getting credit is the issue, right? It's, it's uh, if that makes sense, it's a little bit of uh, nuance to that issue. Oh, definitely. So you say that standard education doesn't work. What's the meaning of that? Well, I, I think standard education works, but we have to think of it as a supplement, not as something that completely solves the problem. 
we're going to send you off to school, and when you come back, everything will all be better. Uh, education in a formal setting is, is by definition not in context, right? And so what we want is to create the real life scenarios that you're living with at work, we're talking about work now, and, and exercising those and learning from those <clears throat> with the book learning and the, the classroom training as a supplement to that. And so I think many times uh, leadership teams abdicate responsibility to the training department and say, you know, send me a trained capable person. Okay, I get why you're saying that, but um, really the learning has to, the growth has to be constant and we have to think that way that we're constantly moving forward and growing and learning all of the time. We should become a learning organization without a training department. Right. So how does an organization deal with change? Mm. Yeah, change. And, and obviously, and, and I know you know, we built software uh, now, enterprise software to help with the leadership of, of organizational change. Um, I, I think one, to start at the very beginning, we have to recognize the leadership of change as a competency and a skill that we need to develop and grow within our, within our company. It's not just something that happens. It's not a, let's throw the change out there and hope people don't yell and scream too much. That's, a lot of people do think of change that way. Rather, and, and if I showed you my methodology, it's long and complex, there's a lot to it. We tend to, when I ask lay people what changes, they, they say things like, oh, it's just training, or that's communication, or that's, you know, and, and it's so much more than that. So weaving in and integrating within the fiber of the company what we're doing. So, because if you think about it, we create a strategy, that strategy has an objective, that objective creates a change. If we adopt the change, we can keep moving with our strategy. If we don't, we've now stopped and thrown a gum in the, gum in the works and it, everything stops. Right. We wonder why things aren't working properly, right? So the, the capability to adopt change well and have that as a competency within our organization is key. I believe how we do change, how we lead change is crucial to that. So if I haven't valued your resistance that you might have, because your resistance might be because you're right, you know more than I do, so I want to value that. It might be a misunderstanding, so I help you through it, and we, we get to clarity. If I don't do that, you're now a disgruntled employee. And so, I, you know, if we just throw it out there and see what happens and just try to manage the project, if you will, manage change. I don't even like that word. I don't like to say manage change because I don't think you can manage change. I think you lead through it. So I call it change leadership, right? And, uh, and so knowing the people, customizing at scale, getting down to individuals. So the, the three people that do billing are taken care of and they can still do their billing when we put the change in. That, that kind of consideration as opposed to treating everybody as one big blob of people and treating them all the same way. That's what doesn't work. And so again, thinking of it in terms of a competency, what I find and the reason I created my software and I have to convince you I'm creating a market to a certain extent. There isn't software like mine in existence because what we've done, I believe, is institutionalized not doing it well because it's so hard. So what I mean by institutionalizing it, nobody gets in trouble for not treating each of the different constituent groups differently because they think, well, it's so hard to do that. We just don't do it. And, and that's where we tend to get into trouble. We don't do something like, 
test for change readiness for those three billing people. And then when we go live with whatever, maybe accounting software, we can't bill our customers for three months. Wow, oh. that's a big problem, right? So all of those intricacies are, are a part of change. And this isn't a human resources, touchy-feely, kumbaya kind of thing. This is real hard, practical work. Um, and, and these are hard skills that people need to have and all leaders need to have, but then there are specialists that do this work. Those are the folks I work with and that use our software um, so that we can become better at this and move along the maturity scale uh, and have this as a competency. And then it's a differentiator in that marketplace. If I can make my uh, strategic plan happen faster because we're adopting change, if I could do that faster than you, I win in the marketplace. Right. That's that's the nature of this. So it's very tangible uh, and, and makes a big difference within organizations. And so that's why I've stamped my foot down and said, darn it, I'm going to fix this thing. It's not OK to not do this right. And so that's the birth of Constituent Hub, which is our software. Constituent Hub. OK, so tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I changed that word that you might be familiar with, stakeholder. You've heard right? of that in yes. project management. I yes. changed the word to constituent. And the idea is it implies that we actually care about that, that person and that we take care of them. We worry about them. We want them to be successful. And that's the whole focus of good change leadership. And so we actually identify all of the people in the company. They're all in our software. And we actually say, okay, then these people and these people are going to be affected by this change. And then I do my work around those folks that I've pulled together. So for the first time, I can see across the enterprise all of the changes that are going on and see a heat map of who's affected. I can, for the first time, look at one individual person and see, wow, that person's involved in seven different change initiatives that are going on. Why is that? Well, they're the head of operations. It makes sense. They should be. Well, why aren't they involved in the other three that are going on? Maybe they should be. Those types of insights aren't, aren't available. But the people doing the work, identifying the individual changes, looking at what's different from one person to the next, looking at who's resistant and how I can help them through that. Uh, communicating properly. All of that is what happens in Constituent Hub. So that person, those people that are leading change, basically have that tab open on their browser all day long. That's where they do their work. And we guide that process so that it doesn't have to be a 30-year veteran to understand how to do that. And we can involve more people involved in more change initiatives, um, doing it the right way and consistently so that we can compare and contrast and learn from that and grow as an organization. Again, building that competency. So that's what Constituent Hub's about. It's an enterprise software tool. It's for larger companies exclusively, like a thousand employees and above is our, is our minimum where it makes sense. Um, but it brings all of the methodology that I've been teaching for decades and, and using, um, but hard to do on a spreadsheet and bring it into a, a scenario with the software that allows it to work well for you and, and easily for you so that you don't just say, oh, that's so hard. We're just not going to do it. And then people right. are harmed by that, right? Definitely. So that's the problem we're solving. So you found a problem, you say, saw the problem and you found a solution for the problem in business. Exactly. Well, and with the advent of the cloud and the way technology has gone, little old me can build enterprise software. That wasn't always the case. I didn't really have an option. Yeah, it wasn't, re wasn't really an option before. And so a small group, uh, you know, small company like mine with a good technology team can build software. And we don't have to build a building and have servers and all of that that goes with, that, that went with software before. And so given that opportunity to be able to do it, the, the, the thing is, yes, let's solve this problem because we can. 
Are you yeah. saying little old, oh, little old me means that anybody can do it? Is that what you're saying, Jim? Well, yeah, I think so. A little ingenuity, a <laughs> little personal brilliance. Yeah, you can do it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think yeah. it's that easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's it's certainly not easy. I'll, I'll tell you that. That's why I lost all my hair, I guess. But uh, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so it's that easy. Uh, but um, but we have we have many more tools in our toolkit now, so that when we do see a problem, we can actually say, let's fix it rather than let it go on. That's Let's really, fix it. Uh, I love that. So Jim, with, with all the knowledge that you have now, I want you to go back and talk to your younger self. What words of wisdom would you give your younger self? Well, um, I think it would be have a broader perspective when we're in our 20s and early 30s and we're really working hard at our jobs, at our professions, we are so heads down focused that we may miss some things. And so I think with wisdom has come the ability to focus in a different way. And that's what I write about in Personal Brains. It's a 360 degree focus so we don't miss things, uh, but we, we might take, be taking disparate facts and putting them together. Uh, that, with that type of focus. And I think when we're younger, when I was younger, I was very, you know, very tunnel focused, more, more uh, laser beam as opposed to spotlight that widens out a little right. bit, right? Yes. And so I think having that capability earlier would be, help, would be more helpful. And I think everybody's a little different in that regard. But uh, to me, that was, that was a lesson that, uh, that I, I wish I would have been stronger at, I guess, earlier on in, in my career. Definitely. So what would you like to share with our audience today? Well, I think we talked about leadership and I do share about leadership uh, every Saturday morning. I picked Saturday morning as me because uh, we tend to, as leaders, take care of everybody all week long. And then on Saturday morning, we go in and get our work done, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> catch up. And so I wanted to start everybody off with some, some words of wisdom on that Saturday morning. So it goes out at six o'clock, but it's an email. So you can read it on Monday if you want to, right? But what I do is I take the, the, the interactions I have with senior leaders through the week and I pull the lessons that come out of those conversations and I share them with you on Saturday morning so that perhaps you can feel like you were in that room and, and you get the advantage of that experience uh, when, when you weren't there. Uh, and so that's what I do every Saturday morning. It's a 300 to 600 word email. It's very simple, but I also give you a to-do for the next week and so on. So um, that's something I guess I would leave you with if you wanted to take advantage of um, you being the audience, um, feel free, uh, just visit our website, jimcantarucci.com, and there's buttons for Saturday morning and you can sign up very easily. Uh, and the best part as me I like is our readers then reply, interact, we talk to each other and we talk about real live issues um, that, that leaders are going through and experience. And so to me, uh, it's a great community from that, from that perspective. So I would, I would offer that to, if anybody is interested to take advantage of that and hang out with me on Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. So ladies and gentlemen, you can hang out with Jim on Saturday mornings. That's, that's brilliant. We'll get nerdy about leadership right? <laughs> talk about leadership all day that's great um so so jim thank you so much for being with us today it was a brilliant conversation thank you so much so ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for listening to sprinting to success podcast thank you and have an amazing day my name is jim cantarucci i am known for the fact that i am a shareholder of the green bay packers <gasps> and i'm sprinting to success
with Esme Lauren. Woohoo! Thank you so much. Oh, I love that. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Sprinting to Success with your host, Esme Lawrence. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show on iTunes. For more information about Esme and to hear other episodes of the show, go to EsmeLawrence.com. The information in this podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional or medical treatment or advice. Always seek advice from your healthcare provider.